This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hi guys, welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sarah, and you're listening to episode nine. Have you ever wondered what makes you tick? How about what makes your partner tick, your best friend, your mom, or even your boss? If you knew that answer, would it be easier to relate to others and have better relationships? Today's guest on the podcast says yes, a very firm yes. Ian Morgan Cron is a champion of the Enneagram, a powerful tool used for personal and collective transformation. Stemming from the Greek words Ennea, meaning nine, and gramos, meaning a written symbol, the nine-pointed Enneagram represents nine distinct strategies for relating to self, others, and the world. In this interview, Ian breaks down the nine personality types of the Enneagram, their strengths and their weaknesses. He also explains how knowing your Enneagram type can help you navigate your marriage, friendships, and even your job. I had the pleasure of taking one of Ian's workshops a couple of weeks ago when he was in Indianapolis, and he made this statement that stuck with me. Don't treat others the way you want to be treated. Treat them the way they want to be treated. Interesting take on the old golden rule we learned in elementary school, right? Ian is an author, speaker, therapist, and a podcast host, and we are so excited to have him join us on Illuminate today. I even managed to squeeze in a little personal counseling session when we started talking about my number. Can you guess what I am? Can you guess what you are? You're about to find out. Enjoy my conversation with Ian Morgan Cron. Welcome to the Illuminate podcast. Yay! You're an avid listener, aren't you, Ian? I am. <laughs> well, you will be after this. We That's really right. appreciate you being on. Uh, so we had the pleasure of meeting um, just last week at the EdgeX Mentoring Conference in Indianapolis. So I got to meet you and your lovely better half. Um, yes. Anne. Annie or Anne? Now, what, what, what do you call her? I call her both. Uh, and she responds to both. Okay. Well, then we'll leave it at both. My mother is Anne. My daughter's middle name is Anne. My middle name was Anne until I made my maiden name Anne. So it's a family name on our in our side, too. Awesome. Yeah, my mom's name is Anne. So which is from a Freudian perspective, very strange. But <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure it is. So how did you like Indy? Did you get to spend much time in our city? Or were you kind of in and out for the conference? I was pretty much in and out. But I've been to Indy before, and it's a great city, and so I was sad not to have the opportunity to wander around, do some stuff. Well, we appreciated the time that you did give us at the workshop and then again at the conference on Friday, and we'll get to that um, a little bit later in the podcast, but I want to just kind of introduce everybody to you. Can you just tell us about yourself a little bit and about your family? We know we've established there are some ands in your life, but who else do you have? Yeah, I have an amazing family. So yes, my wife Anne and I have been married for 31 years. And I have three... Congratulations. Yes, uh, three children. My oldest is Kaylee, and she lives uh, in New York. 
I have a daughter, Maddie, who lives and works in San Francisco. And I have a son named Aiden who goes to Brown University, and he's in Providence, Rhode Island. And of course, the most important member of the family is Percy the Golden Doodle. And isn't the Golden Doodle in the room right now while we're recording? Did I hear you say that? No, I actually said, could you lock him in another room? (laughs) He's very friendly, and uh, he will jump in my lap or bark at a dog walking down the street outside. He's an Enneagram 7? Pretty much every puppy is an Enneagram 7, you know? Maybe later on as their personality develops, they uh, turn into something else. But, you know, I think they all start out as 7s. They're just, oh, yeah. They all start out as 7s, which is great. We all need those. We all need 7s in our lives. So let's just, you know, for the person listening who knows a little bit about the Enneagram, but not much has heard about, you know, your work with it. Could you give us just a little background on how you got into this thing called the Enneagram? It's not a new phenomenon, although some people think that it is. Give us some background on it and on your interest in it. Sure. Well, I was first introduced to the Enneagram in 1994. Uh, And at the time I was in grad school doing a master's in counseling psychology. And I was at a Catholic retreat center. And I happened upon a book called The Enneagram, A Christian Approach. And it was uh, written by Richard Rohr. And so I read it and I over the course of a weekend, actually, I gobbled it up. And I just remember thinking to myself, okay, I've been in grad school for a year. Where has this been? Y- you know, because it, it was so remarkably helpful. And uh, of course, I'd been studying personality theory. Uh, I'd been studying um, different kinds of pathologies, abnormal psychology, etc. And all of that's necessary and all of it's good. But I thought to myself, wow, here is a tool among many, that would be so incredibly useful to people. So I uh, graduated from grad school and jumped into a career, and I didn't get so interested in it initially that I started down the wormhole, you know. And uh, But years later, I attended a couple of Enneagram conferences, and so I kind of kept one foot dipped in the water, but not all the way. Then about, oh, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, I just kept hearing people talking about the Enneagram. And I was like, hey, who has written about the Enneagram? In particular, who has written a readable, accessible, non-clinical primer to the Enneagram? And I realized nobody. So I was was at a stop sign. I can actually see the stop sign from here because it was right outside my house. And in a flash, it was like God said, you heard, write you a book the on voice. the Enneagram. <laughs> you knew. Yeah. And I'll tell you, oh, and I'll tell you a funny story about it. I went to my literary agent and I said, I got a great idea. And I told her I wanted to write a book on the Enneagram. And the first words out of her mouth were, <laughs> that's a terrible idea. It's, it's, it's not on brand for you. It's not the kind of thing you're known for writing. I don't think it's a good idea. And I kept pestering her. And I kept, and in fact, at one point I said to her, I guarantee you, if I write this book, let's make a bet. I'll sell, we'll sell a hundred thousand units in the first year. And if that's the case, if I, we do that in the first year, you're going to take me out for a big stake and you are going to own your words. And, and you've been getting stakes ever since, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> because of how well it's doing. Yeah. It's done remarkably well. It's very gratifying. So 
you know, did you find that there were people who you were trying to explain the Enneagram to what what is the Enneagram? Or did you feel like people knew what it was? They just didn't they hadn't taken the opportunity to learn more about it, or was it a mix of both? It was a mix of both. What was very interesting to me was that I kind of expected some pushback either from possibly from the clinical psychology community, though I was sort of not worried about that. Uh, I, I have a, there's a portion of my audience that's a sort of a more faith-based group, and I thought, well, maybe I'll get some pushback from them. It was just the exact opposite. Both communities uh, embraced it enthusiastically, and uh, I've not had any. Honestly, this is this is crazy to me. It's been out for three years. I have not yet, in really in any way, shape, or form, gotten any pushback uh, about the Enneagram from anywhere. Do you think that's because we are living in a society where we, at least it seems, are so focused on finding ourselves? Who are we in this world? How do we fit? That seems to me, maybe maybe it's just as I'm getting older and raising children or uh, you know, just learning more about myself, something that I am more focused on. Do you think that that's the truth with everyone? And, and so as a result, you're not getting pushback because they are curious just like you were. Yeah. I mean, uh, let's face it, asking questions like, who am I? Where do I belong? And am I really loved? I would tell you that those are the three most important questions you need to answer in adolescence. And if you don't, if you drag those into adulthood, you have, you're going to have significant problems, right? So these are fundamental core questions for the human life. And uh, so any tool that can help us figure out who am I, what explains the patterns that uh, have followed me through life, both good and bad, you know, bad patterns, where do I belong? Where, where might my gifts be best used? Uh, You know, those kinds of questions are just, basic life questions. And so I think the attraction of the Enneagram is that it does a really good job of answering those questions efficiently. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm not saying it's the only tool. I'm not saying it's a standalone tool. In fact, I I tell people all the time, you know, you should also be consulting with lots of other tools to answer these kinds of questions, you know. But, you know, I think you know, that people uh, are just trying to answer questions that people uh, have been trying to answer for thousands and thousands of years. Right. So you said at the workshop last week, something that I thought was really impactful and stuck with me. You said, treat others the way they want to be treated, not the way you want to be treated, which is obviously a reverse on the old adage, treat others the way you want to be treated. And the Enneagram helps you do that, right? It helps you determine who who you are, who this this number is. And we won't go through all of the numbers because that's what the road back to you will help you do if you want to read that book or do your own research. But we'll talk about a few of them. And so, you know, I think that phrase stuck out to me because because it is it really is true. I mean, when I I think we discussed this, I'm I think I'm a three. I am. I took your test, and that's what it says. So I guess I guess that's right. But not everybody is, and I can't treat everyone like a three, or people aren't going to like me very much. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I can I can tell you that one of the things I tell CEOs when I'm consulting with corporations is one of the most egregious mistakes that a leader can make is to presume that their way of seeing the world is normal. 
So if the Enneagram is right, for example, there are at least eight other normal ways of seeing the world, right? So I think what the Enneagram does is it can provide people with information about the way other types of people see the world, experience the world, the ways that they need to be treated, be communicated with, understood and seen and valued. You know, if you treat an eight on the Enneagram the way that you treat a two, right? There's going to be problems. It's going to be a problem. And make that two cry. Yeah. And, and so the eight needs to know, oh, wait a minute. You know, twos are very sensitive to criticism. I can't be as blunt as I might be with another eight. I need to exercise restraint. And so the Enneagram gives you low resolution, but incredibly helpful pictures of other types of people so that you can treat them in the way that they need to be treated, not assuming that everybody sees the world like you do and treating them in a way that you want to be treated. Right. And then I know that I just said we're not going to tick through all of them, but I think that would be doing a disservice if we don't have you just walk through at least what you consider, what you call each number, or what each number is called. And I know you have a slightly, some of the words, at least I think that you call the numbers are slightly different, uh, or they vary from teacher to teacher. So let's do that because I think for a novice listener, they might be wondering what the Enneagram is and what the numbers are and what number they are, which you really should, you know, take a test to figure out, but tick through them if you will. Sure. And let me just add one sentence to each, right? So that... Please do. Yes. Yeah. uh, At least give people who don't know it some context. So ones are called the perfectionists and they are motivated by a need to perfect themselves, others, and the world. Twos are called the helpers and they have a need to meet the needs of other people in order to win love uh, and approval and appreciation. Threes are called the achievers or the performers. They have a need to succeed, to appear successful, and to avoid failure at all costs. Fours are called the individualists. They have a need to be special and unique. Fives are called the investigators. They have a need to perceive or understand pretty much everything in life. Sexes are called the loyalists, and they have a need to feel safe, secure, and supported in what they perceive as an unpredictable, chaotic, and dangerous world. Sevens are called the enthusiasts. They have a need to avoid psychological and emotional pain and deprivation. Eights are called the challengers. They have a need to assert power and strength over the environment in order to mask and deny weakness and vulnerability both from themselves and others. Finally, the nines are called peacemakers, and they have a need to maintain connection, avoid conflict at all costs, and very importantly, to maintain inner balance and peace. Well done. Didn't even Thank look you. at didn't even look at your notes there, did you? That was all by memory. I, I don't I don't need the, my notes anymore. <laughs> I can tell you that. So we you take a test, you determine what you and can you tell me uh, the name of your test? The Q, Q I want to say Q nine, or I'm sorry, I'm going to mess that up. Yeah. So there's a lot of assessments out there, and as you can imagine, in this day and age, when you can find personality quizzes in, on just about every magazine website, mm-hmm. uh, right? None of which are, I honestly, very helpful. The IEQ nine, which people can get to if they go to emcron.com and go to the IEQ nine tab. Honestly, I'm not 
saying this just for the sake of self-promotion, it's the most accurate assessment in terms of validity and reliability you can find in terms of discovering your Enneagram type. I do always tell people like Myers-Briggs that if you take an Enneagram assessment, if you have any, I think basically everybody ought to sit with someone who really knows the Enneagram to verify the result because every self-report assessment, of course, like any other test, has margins of error. So anyway, uh, yeah, you could take an assessment that could begin your journey or you could simply read the road back to you and discover your type by uh, reading the descriptions that go with every chapter. So you take so t- you either take the test or read the book. You determine your number. Mm-hmm. I think the struggle that I have and some of my friends who, when we've discussed the Enneagram, is that we've taken the test, we've read the book, we think we have a pretty good stronghold on our number, we're understanding of our number and where we're where we are when we're healthy and when we're not. But there are days where I feel like a two and there are days when I feel like an eight. I'll be honest, I never really feel like a five, but um, other numbers I can or at least qualities of that number I can feel on any given day. So talk about that and how you sort of wrestle with that. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that everyone needs to know is that they contain all nine types. So all nine types are uh, available and inside all of us, right? It's just that one of them is dominant. Uh, but Or maybe another way of saying it, one of them just feels like home. I like that. Uh, compared to the other eight. And so earlier I mentioned those one-sentence statements, which I would call the unconscious motivations of every type. That's how you determine type. It's not the way that people act or their characteristics or their traits, because if you are all nine types, of course you have traits and characteristics of all of them, right? What differentiates the nine types are what it is that drives the behavior, that's the unconscious motivation. Hmm. Okay. So d- explain that a little bit more. Let talk about it in terms of either your number or pick a number and give an example. Sure. Okay. So two numbers that frequently get confused with each other are nines and twos. Okay. Okay. So if you wanted to just do it on the basis of traits and characteristics, you would say, well, you know, nines are nice and they're very uh, peaceable people and they are very servant hearted. Well, so are twos, right? Sure, sure. What, so how would you guess? I mean, how would you know which one is you? Go to the unconscious motivations and ask yourself the question, do I relate to the unconscious motivation of the two, which is I have a need to be needed to meet the needs. Of, I mean, I'm sorry. I have a, yeah, I have a need to be needed to meet the needs of others to win love, approval, and appreciation. Or do you identify more with the unconscious motivation of the nine, which is to maintain connection with others, to avoid conflict at all costs, and maintain balance and inner peace. That's how you're going to find out, is compare which of those two statements most resonates with you. And that is going to reveal to you type. Okay, and because I'm the one with the the microphone and other people are listening, I'm going to be selfish and ask. I struggle with two numbers a three, which is how I always test, and the one that feels like home, if you will, even though sometimes I don't love that about the three, um, but and um, an eight. Mm-hmm. So if I were trying to determine um, my unconscious motivator, could you kind of dissect those numbers? Again, this is more just for, for me. Sorry, listeners, you're going to have to hear a little therapy session. 
No, I'm sure it'll be very helpful to people. <laughs> uh, so first of all, it's not unusual for a three and an eight to get confused, in part because three sevens and eights are the most aggressive numbers on the end. They're, they're what we call the aggressive triad. So those three numbers are more assertive. You know, so let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Three sevens and eights, when they want something, they go and they get it. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, they yes, go they and do. They get it. <laughs> well, that's not true of other numbers. Or it's not, it's not as true with other numbers, okay? So because threes and eights are both in that assertive triad, you know, the difference would be, first, the unconscious motivations. The motivation for threes is a need to succeed, to appear successful, to avoid failure at all costs. For an eight, it's to mask vulnerability and weakness mm. in order, uh, and, to, and they do it by asserting power and strength over the environment, right? So you have to ask yourself, which of those two statements do you most identify with? Makes perfect sense. And makes me realize again that I'm a three. <laughs> well, here's okay how else, right, so here's how else you know you're a three. It's the number that made you most uncomfortable. And I often, oh, interesting. I, I often tell people, if I'm doing a workshop, I'm like, okay, if you want to know your type, one of several you know, ways that you can know your type is that when I start talking about it, you start to want to you know, crawl under your bed. Right. And I did that during the workshop. I, you know, was listening and you didn't start with one. You, I think you started with eight. So it took a while to get to three. And then when I, when we got there, um, I did kind of, at first I was like, yeah, this is me rock on. And then I was like, oh wait, never, never mind. <laughs> what other number could I be? Well, that's because the, the Enneagram, unlike other personality typing systems reveals that which is best about you and that which is worst about you. And so when we hit the stuff that we're not getting right in life, we feel exposed. And that's not uh, a great feeling, especially when you're in a room with 350 people who are hearing about your interior life. Well, and you asked us all to raise our hands when we, who's a this and who's a that? And so when you got to three, I raised my hand. I was very proud. And then, like you said, the numbers were getting exposed. And I, I was looking around thinking, who saw me raise my hand? Who knows? Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah absolutely. So um, switching gears a little, let's apply the Enneagram. I mean, obviously, it applies to lots of different relationships. But talk about how it can apply to friendship first. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the Enneagram gives us a, a low resolution picture of what the interior world of other people are like, right? And, you know, when you know what people are like, you, you have, I mean, and this is always true when you're talking about personality, you have a set of probabilities, right? So you can say, gosh, I know that Sarah's a three. In this situation, it's probable, not guaranteed, but it's probable that she's going to respond this way. You know what I mean? Right. And that means that in a friendship, you can serve the other better because you have this level and depth of insight, right? Yeah. And it provides a vernacular. If both of you know the Enneagram, it gives you a vernacular that is both enjoyable and tremendously helpful because you can begin to talk at a very deep level and very quickly about what's it like to live in my shoes? 
And what that gives is empathy. And if anything is needed in a relationship between friends, it's empathy. That's right. Yeah. Grace, for sure. Um, what about how it applies to marriage? I mean, I assume the same way, but obviously different relationships. So how, how do you apply it to your marriage? Boy, there's so many ways I could answer that. I would say that, number one, I don't ever, ever, ever go to a workshop, let's say, with 50 or more people where one or two people will come up to me and say something as dramatic as the Enneagram saved my marriage. Wow. Or the Enneagram has deepened my relationship with my spouse in really profound ways. I had a man not long ago come up to me after a workshop. He was from California, and he said, you know, I probably ought to pay you 10 grand for today. He said, because I've probably spent 30 in the last 10 years on counseling, hmm. and, and I learned more today than I've learned in, you know, I know my wife today 30% better than I knew her at 8 o'clock this morning. Isn't that interesting? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating, oh, yeah. really. That... Oh. oh, yeah, and they know that what they heard was accurate, you know, because they've seen it. They just didn't know how to name it. And so I just did something that I think all good teachers, I hope I'm a good teacher, but what a good teacher does is they save you time. And I just save people time in relationships. Here's another way of saying what I think a good teacher does. I I try to say clearly what other people feel vaguely. Hmm. So I'm able to give, because the Enneagram has given it to me, uh, I'm able to give clarity and language to what people kind of vaguely know about their spouse, but they've never had someone uh, lay it out in as concise and clear a way. So uh, the other thing I think is something I mentioned in friendship, which is that it gives you a vernacular, right? So my wife, I, mean, I guess people probably think that we all sit around here all day long in my house talking about the Enneagram. <laughs> no, I'm sure that doesn't happen. But I bet it, I bet you're a lot of fun at a dinner party. <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes I get invited to dinners and ambushed by people who are like, ah, we just want to talk about our numbers. I bet you do. But, I mean, the Enneagram has had a revolutionary effect on my marriage. And it has, in part, done so because... My wife and I have a common language to talk about our relationship and why it works so well and why sometimes it goes off the rails. And I mean, even if the language isn't precise, and of course, you know, Enneagram doesn't account for every little nook and cranny of your personality, right? But it gives us, at the very least, a super helpful starting place to have the conversation. And it is quite accurate. So... I mean, that's a leg up in a big way. Absolutely. And and especially, I mean, like you said, 31 years into marriage later, you guys are still relying on the Enneagram-based principles to, you know, to get through life together. Okay, so I can just tell you that at, we had, we were probably at 25 years when I did a deep dive into the Enneagram, right? I'm not where I went all the way in. And I can tell you that I met my wife again for the first time. Wow. And... You know, I think it can do that for, and it frequently does do that for marriages. It's as though, seriously, it's like blinders fall off and you're like, oh my gosh, I thought that, I've been taking this personally for the last 25 years, you know? Uh, And so, no, so it's, it's very powerful. 
Yeah. So I know you. if people have listened to your podcast or read your book, they know what number you are. But can you um, tell us what number you are? Do you, do you mind telling us what number Anne no. is? I remember from our conversation, but I'd love for you to tell us. And then how you two give us a couple examples of how you do relate to, to each other with your numbers. So I'm a four on the Enneagram. We are sometimes called the unicorns of the Enneagram because we think there are fewer fours in the population than any other type. The need for the fours, these very, we're very creative, deep, deep imaginations and, you know, a powerful aesthetic sensibilities. There's a lot, of, it's a disproportionate number of fours in the artistic world, right? In the arts community. My wife is a nine, the peacemaker, and their unconscious motivation, as you will call, is this avoidance of conflict, maintaining the status quo and inner peace and harmony. So in our relationship, a few of the things we discovered about each other was I tend to be someone who has a very rich inner dialogue. I'm always asking big existential questions about life. I can see how this is going to go for a nine. And nines don't naturally do that, right? My focus, uh, the focus of nines, of fours, is more internal, whereas for a nine, their focus of attention is more external. So you can imagine these are really big differences. Right. Fours tend to be deep feelers, emotional. Nines, not so much necessarily. Our interior world is full of not, I mean, yeah, kind of, it's tumultuous, right? It's emotionally tumultuous. But a nine's inner world, if they're successful at their strategy, is very peaceful and, and kind of tranquil. Mm. Well, that can lead to a lot of misunderstandings in a relationship, right? Absolutely. Well, when we figured out our types, it was like, oh, that's why. And it's not limited to you. There's a whole bunch of people out there just like you and me. And so all the difficulties we've had in the past or, and have currently, it's not personal. Yeah, like, so, it's right? not personal. Yeah. It's not personal. But and obviously we have work to do so we can be, you know, high functioning in our particular type. So that's just a just a couple of things off the top of my head that right yeah. away was like revelatory. Yeah, you see her in a way that you're thinking, well, this makes perfect sense that you don't, you know, ask me these questions or think the way I do. Or, and I am also married to a nine. So I, um, and, and they are, they make wonderful partners. And I agree with you that there are times when they live in a world that's very peaceful. And I'm thinking, how does this not bother you? How, you know, how, yeah. how are you not bothered by what I'm bothered by right now? Right. And so, like for a three and a nine, a big issue would be, for the three would be, why aren't you more ambitious? Why why don't you work hard? Yes. Well, and my husband's, I should say, he's very ambitious. But yes, it's more like, how come you didn't do that job the way I would have done that job? Okay. So for nines often will do the minimum to get by. And sometimes a three would be like, why didn't you crush that? Why wasn't that done in a way that was maybe more thorough or was fully completed? You know, it, you know, that's a big thing for nines, right? Is uh, they, they can suffer mission drift after when they're working on something and kind of get it 90% done or 80% done and say to themselves, oh, that's good enough. And that'll drive a three nuts. Oh, I'm laughing because we have, so we have a nanny for my um, five month old when I'm at work, he's, he's at home with a nanny. And um, we have these things, that, these baby logs that she writes down 
you know, what he ate and when he napped and when he went to the bathroom, you know, all the things. And so I asked my husband, would you please print more logs? We're out of them, you know, and three hole punch them so we can put them in the binder. So it took a couple of days reminder to get the logs printed. And then he came home and he handed them to me. Look, I printed the logs. They were not three hole punched, Ian. What am I supposed to do with them? So I'm like, Casey, all I needed, you know, the the three hole punch was right next to the printer at work. All you have to do is stick them in there and three hole punch them so we can put them in the binder. The job is now complete, but that's a small example of a three being annoyed with a nine. And he's going to kill me for telling that story. But I thought it was appropriate. Yeah, I mean, but do you see how once you know that about each other, you can begin to negotiate the differences in a new way. And you should never, ever say, oh, I'm a three. That's just how it is. Deal with it. Perfect. Yep. That's going to lead me right to my next point. But go ahead. Well, so your your number is not an excuse for, you know, acting in ways that uh, are at the low side of health in that number. So the nine has to actually, it's interesting that part of what the nine has to do is look at a three, right? When they're doing great, a nine will act like a three. They'll get very action-oriented. They'll start to write lists. They'll start to make become goal-oriented. They'll become you know, more driven. So they'll start to access some of the resources and the gifts of the three when they're in a good space. Now, when you're in a bad space, you'll start to act like an unhealthy nine. Oh, is that right? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, you'll start to kind of get depressed and you know, not care as much about your appearance. You might lay around on the couch and binge Netflix uh, <laughs> that when things awesome. aren't going. <laughs> yeah, when things aren't going well, though, you'll feel less driven, uh, a little depressed and defeated, worried that you know, I'm a failure and I'm embarrassed. You know, so when you're in a bad space, that's where you go. So it's interesting. You guys actually share a line on the Enneagram. Hmm, that is interesting. And I, I want to come back to your point about it can't be an excuse because I, I do think that some people will just say, use it as an excuse for, I guess, what I might call bad behavior. Mm-hmm. I just do that because I'm a three. I just do that because I'm a five, whatever the number. So what do you say to, you know, to people who do that and then to the naysayers of the Enneagram who might think that that excuse is prevalent and so they just rule it out altogether? Yeah, I... I have no energy for those people because the Enneagram is a tool for transformation. It's not a tool that's simply there to help you identify your way of being in the world. And if you just use it to, to, to stop and stop at the point of self-knowledge, basic self-knowledge, it's not enough. Uh, the Enneagram, the purpose of it is for transformation. It's not, it's not just information. Uh, and as we know, Information is not transformation. And people who think it is are sorely misguided. That's a good, yeah, that's good. I like that. Um, the last relationship I wanted to talk about was uh, in the workforce. So I know we talked a lot, obviously, at the EdgeX Leadership Conference, we talked a lot about leaders. So let's start there. And how do you, how do you think the Enneagram can help leaders, business or otherwise? Yeah, so one of the things I mentioned at, at EdgeX is that there was a, a study done at Cornell that they took, a, they did a deep dive research study into the lives of 72 high-performing CEOs of, of companies ranging a value from like 50 million to 5 billion bucks. And what they wanted to find out is what set of characteristics or traits accounted for 
their success. Like, you know, what was the number one thing that they all shared in common that explained their success? They expected it to be, you know, great strategic planning or grit or, uh, you know, any of the other sort of traits that we've all read about in books, right? right? And what they discovered was amazing. They discovered that the key predictor of success in leadership is self-awareness. And so that was a huge breakthrough in the into the business world that, you know, these soft skills, things like self-awareness are terrifically important. Again, a leader can't presume that everybody sees the world the way they do. And if you lead with that assumption, you are going to run into a lot of personal problems with people. You're going to have conflict. You're going to run into engagement problems with engagement and retention. You're going to, people are going to feel unseen and unvalued, which is the number one reason people leave jobs, you know? And so, I mean, the list goes on and on, you know, a leader who isn't self-aware in my mind is a danger to themselves and to the people that they are called to lead. And they're kind of just driving blind, you know, and they bang around into people in the dark. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be that way. They can learn about different types of people and learn how to monitor and regulate the ways that they act, think, and feel with different types of people so that those people are going to respond in a really positive way to what their, their leader. Right. Well, and if they don't, I mean, eventually, if you're driving blind, eventually you're going to crash. And same with a leader. I mean, you're going to eventually you're going to turn around and no one's going to be following you anymore. Right. And you're going to get yourself out of that leadership role pretty quickly. And it may not, maybe it won't happen quickly, but eventually down the road, I, I would yeah. assume that it would. Do you recommend then what practical sort of tips would you say to a leader who is maybe hearing about the Enneagram on this podcast for the first time or who is in the middle of your book, but new to the Enneagram? What would you say that they should do right away with their team or with themselves? Well, the very first thing a leader has to do is lead themselves. So they have to do their own work. There's a temptation uh, among leaders who would be like, okay, I, I want to learn all the types of my people on my team and get them to work on themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, that's not how this has to work. A leader has to model the importance of getting self-knowledge and also working on themselves. And then once that happens, then they can begin to spread it to their, their team. And then they also have credibility. It's like, hey, I've been working with this thing called the Enneagram, and it's really changing my worldview and the way I'm relating to the world. I want all of us to get on board with it. Again, I really commend the IEQ-9 assessment, in part because it delivers a super robust report. And I use it in corporate settings a lot because it also, if you, if you want one, can provide a team report, right? And so that's another tool. And then actually, funny you should mention it, but on October 28th, I am launching a course called Enneagram Made Simple. Well, now you're stealing my thunder. I was going to mention that next. Yeah, well, let me... You go ahead. <laughs> this is a course that Donald Miller and, uh, of StoryBrand and I put together. And if people just go to EnneagramMadeSimple.com, they can learn about it. Uh, what I've discovered is, you know, lots of people, they're not necessarily readers. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they, yeah. they really learn from listening and watching somebody. And so this is an opportunity for people to have a resource they can watch with their teams, they can watch with their their spouse, uh, a family, a small group, uh, you know, so it's usable across lots of 
different formats and settings. And uh, I'm really excited about this Enneagram Made Simple thing because it's something that people have been pestering me to do for about to, for the last two years. So, so it, it's an online course, and you'll you know each week or at what 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 frequency we will turn it on and see you. How does that work? Well, actually, you just you get the whole course. Okay, but you'll learn. It's a little more complicated than that because it comes with other opportunities through StoryBrand. But if they go to Enneagram Made Simple, they can actually even just sign in with their email so that they get an announcement when the course drops. And also, we'll have probably a one-week window where you can get two courses. I heard that on your podcast. Yeah, for the price of one. So that would be great. So we'll link that in the show notes and then also the IEQ9 test in the show notes um, so that people can have both of those resources. So thank you. Well, before we let you go, because I could talk to you for hours, but I'm sure Anne wants to have dinner with you at some point this evening. So I will let you go soon. We are, our podcast was formed out of our monthly supper club. There are four of us who are, um, who head up this podcast. And so we like to ask our guests, what is a recipe that they love? Do you cook, Ian? Or do you have a recipe that you love or could share? And you don't have to give us all the ingredients, but. So I can put it in the show. Yeah, notes. I'm just going to tell you that if we're pretty much the prepared food section at Whole Foods. Love it. <laughs> you know, uh, I could name you any number of dishes in the prepared food section of Whole Foods that I that I love. I'm not really a cook. My wife loves to cook and I'm happy to let her. So what's a, what's something from the prepared food section that you do like? Sal- the salad bar? <laughs> oh, I do like the salad bar, but I sure love, you know, barbecue brisket and uh, mm. mashed potatoes and all the comfort food I can get my hands on. Uh, I remember when we moved to the South, one of the things that made me laugh out loud was I went, we're at Whole Foods of all places, and they had deep fried tofu. <laughs> and I was like, why does that? Of course they did. Yeah, I was like, this, why does this feel like a contradiction in terms to me? Health food, deep fried. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I've learned to kind of like deep fried whole food. I like deep fried just about anything. So that's great. The name of our podcast is the Illuminate Podcast. And we like to talk to people who are illuminating their world through their vocation or through their hobbies. Is there someone or something that you would like to see illuminated? Something or someone I would like to see illuminated. Or just, you know, just given more, just given more attention to that might not already be in the spotlight. What I would love to see illuminated for people in a, a deep way is what, what is the story or the narrative from which they, they live their lives, right? Someone years ago asked me a question that changed the direction of my life. And the question was, how do you know if the story you tell yourself and others about who you are is true? And that's a very deep question. What he was saying is, how do you know if the story you inhabit is true? Mm -hmm. How do you know the unconscious beliefs and drives? What are they? What's that dictate the way that you understand your story? Mo Willems, the author, has a great quote. He says, if you find yourself living in the wrong story, leave. <laughs> and I would tell you that I think most people are, are, number one, unaware that they inhabit a story. Number two, they are unaware that the story, most more often than not, is broken. It's a broken story. And uh, they don't know, actually, that they have agency to leave it. 
I mean, honestly, this is a book that I'm working on, so hopefully it will eliminate this uh, this question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm, there are other people who have written about it in different ways, and I, I would love to see that broadcast more widely. Well, I have just one more end of the podcast question, and that is, what is one message that you would like to send to the world? So if I had any message that, that I would want to send the world, it would be that you are here for a very profound reason. I like to say that, you know, you have been sent upon an errand uh, in this life, and it is your obligation to fulfill it before you leave here. And so it's, it's important for us to determine what's the errand for which I have been sent into the world. And, you know, to me, that's a, a really beautiful challenging and thrilling idea. Yeah, I love that. That's another great quote. I'm going to have to write that one down. Yeah, I think something we all need to think about every day and that can guide our day is what is the errand we've been sent on, you know, today. So yeah, there's a author I love. Uh, his name is James Hollis. And Hollis asked the question, what wants to come into the world through you? And it's not ever going to be the same for any two people. And I, I, I love that question as well. And that's good that it's not the same for any two people, right? Because then we can all bring those different things to the world through us. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, I think one of the things that differentiates people from each other who happen to be of the same type, right? So here's something that distinguishes every three from every other three, right? Because no one's the same. It would be at the level of mission. Like, what's your particular mission? will deeply affect your, your personality and your way of being in the world. Though you might be in a world of, I don't know how many billions or millions of threes, right? None of them have the same mission, mm-hmm. right? And nor will they actually undertake the mission in the same way. So, yeah, I think that's a, an important thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. If we were all on the same mission, then especially as a three, if all the threes were on the same mission, then it would get done. Oh, yeah. But there would be a lot of work left undone. Yep, for sure. Well, I think this is a good place to start that. And we will look forward to that next book. Well, Ian, we so appreciate your time and your talent. Um, I enjoyed so much learning from you both at the workshop on Thursday night and then also at EdgeX on Friday. And I'm excited that so many thousands of people got to hear you there. And then we'll also, um, you know, you obviously are on lots of podcasts and your own included. And so it's great that you're spreading your message in multiple ways. It has resonated with me and my family and my friends. And so I'm sure it is with others as well. Thank you so much. It was a real joy to be on with you. Well, did you make it all the way to the end without figuring out your number? As Ian said, you won't truly know your number until you read and learn more about it. If you'd like to take Ian's IEQ9 test, go to our website, theilluminatepodcast.com, and you'll find a link to it in the show notes. We've also linked Ian's book, The Road Back to You, his podcast typology, and information about the new course he talked about, The Enneagram Made Simple. I hope you were inspired and encouraged by this podcast about self-discovery. I know for me, I can honestly say several times a day since I interviewed Ian, I found myself thinking twice about the way I interact with others knowing they might not be a three like me, but who wouldn't want to be a three? Just kidding. Just kidding. It's more than okay to be the number you are. 
Thanks so much for listening today. If you liked the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Illuminate Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next Wednesday.